Hey, it's Molly from The Conversation here, and I'm just dropping in to let you know that you should definitely sign up to our newsletter. Grab your mobile phone, go to The Conversation website, and up top you'll see a purple banner. Click on it, enter your email address, and from tomorrow you'll be receiving the best news and analysis from Australia's leading experts. Okay, back to the podcast. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. It's actually a lot harder to bury a body than than most people think. Uh, So a lot of individuals are actually found on the surface. A few episodes ago, we heard from forensic scientists like Micah Newland. She's the one you heard just there at the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research, or AFTER. That's the official name for what, in books and movies, they usually call a body farm. It is there, at a secret bushland site, that researchers are making some really surprising discoveries about how bodies from donors decompose in Australian conditions. One of the most interesting findings for us was that we see a process called mummification, And that's where the body is becoming quite preserved. So rather than breaking down into what we call the very conventional stages, and that's how we usually classify how the decomposition progresses, we saw that it would stop decomposing and it would become preserved instead. Micah Newland is the After Facilities Interim Director and a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. I hope you do go back and listen to that episode in full, and I'm going to play a little more from it at the end of this episode. But today, we're hearing from another expert who has some research underway at AFTER. Professor James Wallman is head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And I've also seen him described as the Lord of the Flies. He's one of the nation's few forensic entomologists. It's his job to unpack the little clues left behind by insects, including the much maligned blowfly, that can help police solve crimes when a body is found. I'd read James Wallman saying that insects have a really profound influence on decomposition, so I began by asking him why. The reason for that, Sonny, is that without insects that specialise in breeding in carrion, the world would be littered with the bodies of all sorts of dead animals, including ourselves for that matter, when we fall Um, victim to murderous attackers from time to time. The reason is that the baby fly, the maggot stage of the life cycle, has a voracious appetite for the rotting tissue um, found in dead animals and breaks down these tissues so that they can be integrated into the soil for uptake by other organisms such as plants. And they, uh, the the mother fly that... um, produces the egg or the maggot, is able to detect the smell of death uh, long before we can, and therefore the maggots get in on the act and break the tissues down well before we uh, have the opportunity to even um, find the dead animal or detect it. They're nature's cleaner upperers. Very much so, yes. The, 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 the maggots, uh, the baby flies, are one of the major agents of decomposition in the world around us. Bacteria are also very important in that regard, but, uh, but, but maggots are the key ones. 
Are there any other insects that we're talking about here? Yes. If you have a look at any kind of dead um, organism, dead animal uh, close up, which most people would rather not do, of course, you'll find uh, a host of other creatures such as beetles in particular that have evolved to only live in um, such a habitat and other things that are found more accidentally such as ants, spiders um, and other invertebrates that might be able to prey on the flies, maggots and beetles uh, or, or may be able to use the carcass for shelter. And so how do police work with forensic entomologists? Well, the first thing to note is that there aren't very many of us in Australia. It's a very niche discipline. Uh, I look after most of the casework for New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. Sorry to cut in. I'm just going to repeat that because I kind of can't believe it. One forensic entomologist looks after most of the casework for New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. That's how few of them there are. I have a colleague... uh, Dr. Melanie Archer, who works in Victoria. And um, what typically happens because of the, the size of Australia and the, and the distances that might need to be traversed between a, um, a crime scene and where the forensic entomologist lives is for the police themselves to collect Uh, insect evidence at the scene and then deliver that to the entomologist for their analysis. And the key thing that the police are interested in uh, having um, us help with is work out approximately when the person may have died. Uh, They may have other evidence that they've collected through witness statements and so on to uh, help suggest a time of death but it's often very difficult through scientific means other than entomology for them to uh, provide the courts with an estimate of of how long the person's been dead and really this information is key to securing a uh, a conviction of an accused or or indeed to um, asserting their innocence, as the matter may be. So just to clarify, you can tell by analysing what stage of the life cycle of an insect might be at, may give us some clues at the of the time of death. Is that is that the relationship between, you know, how do you look at a maggot or an insect and then use that to determine time of death? Well, the key steps are to collect the insect evidence in the first place, then to identify it, and then based on the identity of the specimens and through reference to scientific data that, that might have been collected previously, work out how long it, how long it would have taken for the insect evidence to develop to the stage that it had reached when it was collected. Um, The focus typically is on the maggots, as I've mentioned already, and uh, this is because certainly when bodies have have only been dead a relatively short period, you you may only find the maggots there and, and nothing else. So you work out the age of the maggots and then you work backwards in time and that allows you to uh, infer that the person's been dead at least as long as those maggots have been uh, there. But the person may have been dead longer, however. Uh, You can consider a scenario, for example, where it's the winter time, it's very cold, 
Indeed, it might be too cold for certain parts of the during certain parts of the day for the flies even to be active, and so it won't be until the weather is warmed up enough for the flies to be active until the body became infested, and that starts the clock going that the forensic entomologists are able to work with. And so you've written that forensic entomology has a rich history in Australia and in New Zealand, and it was first used in the region about 90 years ago. So what are its origins in this part of the world? Well, the origins don't go back as far as they do in other parts of the world, such as Europe. But indeed, there is a case that we know about from 1923 in Melbourne, Um, in which police used insect evidence to suggest that a body had been initially killed and dumped in a country location and then relocated to the city. And that evidence was very important to them in the investigation that they undertook of um, the person that they suspected to have undertaken the crime. There's a later case that would be well known to many people, the Thorn kidnapping from 1960, uh, in which uh, a whole suite of evidence was used to demonstrate the guilt of the accused, and insect evidence here was able to help the police refine the, um, the time of death of, of the boy, Graham Thorne. Are there any myths about insects and decomposition that you'd like to bust? Or are there any myths about forensic science that you'd like to bust? Well, a common myth, I suppose, about uh, about blowflies is is that they're dangerous or or um, very harmful to people. Uh, certainly, most people would not like to associate uh, themselves with blowflies and insects of any sort for that matter more than necessary but the the actual risk that they pose to human health is greatly overstated and in fact the benefits that they provide to humanity far outweigh any of the the dangers or inconveniences that they that they may pose so we've touched on their uh, importance in decomposition which really is their importance to the health of the whole world around us. We've touched on their importance as uh, tools in forensic investigations. Um, They're also incredibly important as pollinators so we, we all know that bees are important in in pollinating flowers and crops of various kinds but flies too including blowflies have uh, an under-recognised role uh, in this regard. So for all sorts of reasons, the world around us would be much the poorer were it not for the humble blowfly. And James, what are some of the more recent research projects at AFTER that you've been involved in and what have you found? So I have a current PhD project underway at the AFTER facility with one of my students in which we're looking at the commonly held assumption that uh, pigs are a a useful substitute or proxy for humans when it comes to research in forensic entomology. Um, Understandably, 
around the world it's quite difficult for actual human bodies to be used in entomological or other forensic experiments and so over the past decades pigs have been assumed to be a uh, an adequate substitute because of the fact that they uh, they're fairly hairless like us there's a similar ratio between fat and muscle and indeed in certain cases pig organs have even been transplanted into humans and the aim will be to see whether pigs indeed can be used in this way if we uh, find that they can be then that will uh, free up the opportunities for future research uh, much more. Are there any future projects you'd like to talk about? Well, another interesting one is a, a more fundamental one, perhaps, is to document the actual insects that are attracted to dead bodies. I've already been doing this over time through my work with the police, but through the availability of human remains. In, in a controlled environment such as after, it's, uh, it, it's obviously much easier to study the invasion of such remains by insects much more closely and to get a, a much more detailed handle on which species arrive and when they arrive. And this will help us to produce reference data that we can apply to uh, even more casework in the future. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, not everybody wants to donate their body to science and finding somebody who's prepared to donate their body to potentially have, uh, you know, maggots and blowflies living in them is perhaps not palatable to some people. But the way you explain it sounds like a real a real gift to science and a real gift to helping helping solve crimes and helping us better understand how to solve crimes. Yeah, well, I like to think so. The people who have um, so thoughtfully considered making a gift of their remains to the after facility will be remembered in perpetuity as having made a valuable contribution to all sorts of areas of of science and I encourage people to consider to continue to consider thinking of uh, making a donation of of this sort it's really the the ultimate donation and I can only assure people that their remains, if donated in this way, are treated with the ultimate respect and dignity. That was James Wallman from the University of Technology, Sydney. And I'm going to play you a little more now from our episode a few months back on research underway at the Australian Facility for Taphonomic Experimental Research, or AFTER, which is led by the University of Technology, Sydney. And it is the only facility of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. Here's Mike and Newland again, the AFTER facility's interim director. The stages of decomposition uh, are five broad categories uh, that are used to, to visually characterise decomposition. And they are at the fresh stage, so that is immediately following death, uh, where the individual will look as what they look like in life. And then we have the bloat stage. So this is when you have breakdown of macromolecules, fats and proteins, they'll break down into smaller constituents, and that will cause the gases to be released, and the abdomen will become distended. Uh, And then the abdomen will rupture, and we have something called active decay. And this is the stage where you have the most amount of insect activity and usually the most amount of that 
odor that we associate with decomposition. Uh, and this is where you'll have most of that soft tissue being lost. Uh, and then once most of that soft tissue has been uh, removed, we go into what we call advanced decay. And following advanced decay, we have skeletonized or dry remains, which is the final stage. Mm -hmm. And so what you're finding through this research is that decomposition of human remains in the Australian bush is not necessarily following such a set um, process. It's more that we're seeing a lot of differential decomposition. So we'll see multiple stages at one single time. Whereas with the pigs, it was a lot more clear cut. You would see a pig in active decay and it was easy to classify. Whereas the humans will see multiple stages at one time. Tell me about this weather station thing. So we have a weather station to monitor the environment at the site because it is such an important factor for us. Uh, so we measure the temperature, the rainfall, the humidity, uh, the wind speed and wind gust. Uh, so that's what this large contraption does. I would imagine that temperature and humidity would be a huge factor, but even wind speed? Uh, we measure it because we do a lot of research on the odour. Uh, so sometimes that can help us explain why we're not getting odour on a particular windy day, for example. Into a bit of the, the wind situation. I should make it clear that when I did go to the site, I wasn't allowed to see any donor bodies. They're really protective of the donors and they certainly don't let journalists just randomly roam around the facility. But I can tell you what I did see. One of the first things we came across was a pile of rubble where Mikan told me they had conducted a simulation aimed at working out what kinds of factors are involved when a body is in a collapsed building site, for example. Do you have any preliminary findings from the simulation? Uh, we saw a lot of what we call differential decomposition. Uh, and something else we saw was that we could see differences between how a body was decomposing depending on where the donor was located, uh, which was really interesting to us. What do you mean, depending on where? Uh, so depending on whether a donor was in a certain part of the building debris, it would decompose differently to a donor that might be deeper in a rubble uh, than a donor that might be on the outskirts of the okay. rubble. Okay. And, um, and those sorts of findings would be applicable in what sorts of scenarios? Uh, they're going to be really important for first responders uh, and for anyone that needs to collect evidence or for identification purposes uh, so that investigators know what to expect uh, and what type of evidence we can get from the donors. Uh, what we want to do is we want to find better ways of recovering the victims. Uh, first, find anyone that might still be alive uh, because that's always going to be the number one priority. Uh, but second to that, uh, we want to find any victims that might be deceased because it's equally important to identify them uh, and get any information we can about what's happened in that situation so that we can provide answers to law enforcement, but also that, so that we can provide information to families who are anxiously waiting to see whether their loved one was involved in that. And so mass disasters such as what? Uh, such as uh, it could be natural, uh, it could be floodings or it could be earthquakes. 
uh, could be man-made disasters, uh, could be a plane crash, deliberate plane crash, or, or building explosion. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So there's no donors that we can see here. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of pink tape off in the distance, and that's where we have some graves. Okay. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, we don't have anything that's visible from our demountable or from any of the fence locations, and that is to protect our donors. Yeah. Uh, but we do have some graves over in that fenced area there so anywhere you'll see pink uh, we have some grave scenarios okay so what i can see is a bunch of trees sort of some tape tied to the trees kind of creating a bit of a perimeter around them and you can see different markings off in the distance like little orange flags and signs and i, I don't know if those are sort of are they some sort of electronic measuring meter thing over there that i yeah, we have some uh, temperature and moisture sensors. Uh, so in, we have our local weather station that measures uh, a whole range of different variables. Uh, but we also have very localized temperature and moisture sensors. So these would be inside graves or right next to an individual donor okay. to get very, very specific data. Okay. All right. So in this place here that we're not going to walk into, uh, is there a range of, as you sort of said before, you know, some clandestine graves, some shallow, some deeper? Like what, what would you see in there if you went in there? Uh, so this is our, our mass grave scenario. So we have six different graves in what you can see here, uh, where we have three are just control graves. So they're just dug up and then they're backfilled and they're completely empty. Uh, and then we have three that have donors in them. Oh. Uh, and there are experimental graves, uh, and they have uh, six donors and three donors, and then a single grave as a comparison. Okay. And that control is there to sort of work out to what extent the changes that you see in the environment might be due to the sort of the excavation in the first place, uh, as opposed to the actual decomposition, right? Yeah, so the control grave are there uh, to check if any changes that we do, any disturbances to the ground are just from us simply digging up and then backfilling. Uh, because if you have a, a glance over in that closest little dip there, you can see that you have a little bit of an indentation. Uh, so even though we haven't put anything in that grave, you're still going to have a bit of an indication that something has happened in that area. And that's because we've turned the soil around. Uh, which would be something that police would look for when they look for a clandestine grave they look for disturbances in the soil uh, but what we want to look at is are the disturbances going to be difference between the one that has nothing in it and the one that has a body but what do you think police investigators might see when they look at a site like this what sorts of things are they looking for so they would look for differences in soil color they would look for differences in the vegetation so there would be certain patches here where there's no growth or there'll be a lot more vegetation growth. Both of those are indicators that there's something different. So just anywhere where the soil or the vegetation does not look like what it does just a couple meters nearby. I mean, if it was easy to find <laughs> a clandestine grave, then uh, you'd be out of a job. So I, I know it's, I presume it's not easy, right? Uh, it's not always easy. Uh, some instances, if you, for example, have... Uh, a, a big mound, so that means that they've, the perpetrator has put a lot of soil on the top uh, and you have that raised part, 
uh, that's a bit easier to find. Uh, or if someone's put a lot of rocks on top uh, or made, just made it really obvious. Uh, but in most cases it's not. Uh, it's not very obvious uh, and it takes uh, a lot of practice uh, and it takes a lot of investigative training. Are there any pigs here today or any other animals apart or just the, the human donors? We only have humans on site here uh, and that's uh, to keep with our regulations. So whenever we do anything with pigs, uh, which we still do for certain aspects, of the research, uh, we have to do that outside of the fence or on other areas of the property. Uh, so we have motion sensor cameras uh, and we have some infrared cameras and then we also have time-lapse cameras. And what are they looking for? Uh, so they're looking for any changes, movement of the ground uh, and also looking at heat signals that might come from the ground as the bodies are decomposing. Uh, and the time-lapse cameras are simply looking at the vegetation as it changes. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. If you enjoyed today's episode... Hit subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your podcast-loving friends about us. It really helps. You can hear the full episode about After if you scroll back to our July episode. Special thanks today to James Wallman and Mike and Newland from the University of Technology, Sydney. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits and subscribe to The Conversation's daily newsletter to get the best analysis from the sharpest minds in the country, all on our website at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.